we had a wedding in early May from uh, to the couple is from Indy, lives here, but they were getting married down in Jacksonville, uh-huh. Florida. Yep. So we've known the groom for a long time, indirectly kind of known the the bride um, for a while and her family. I don't know why I didn't make the connection, but I didn't. And so we go down there and I had a, like a day or two of work before the wedding weekend. Anyway, Friday night they have like the rehearsal dinner and a bunch mm-hmm. of, since obviously everyone's pretty, everyone's out of, from out of town. We're all there and hanging out and I'm just sitting there and I just happen to look up and all of a sudden I see Bill and his son, Ryan. I'm like, what the hell are they doing here? <laughs> so I yell out and, and Bill's like, um, the, the that's bride is my niece. <laughs> yeah. Oh, wow. Like, my okay. sister's daughter. So. Okay. But her last name's Owens, so you wouldn't have made the connection. True. Yeah. Correct. But that was, you talk about a small world, all of a sudden you guys are just standing there and then so yeah. start chit-chatting. And it's not like you're at a restaurant in Indy or you're in well, Florida no, or you're but hanging it, out. Is that, is that like, the, yeah. you know, in, in Indianapolis, we like to say it's two ways back to Kevin Bacon instead of seven in New York City. <laughs> and so that was just basically taking Indy, moving it down to Jacksonville for a weekend. True. That was the same True. thing there because there were yeah. multiple other yeah. people there who, again, probably shouldn't surprise me that they were there, but, but there were did. several people yeah. there that we knew. It was wild. It was good. It was a good weekend. I agree. Yeah. Um, Ryan, I'm not exactly the the biggest guy to go on the dance floor. Not shocking, okay. I know. Okay. Um, but but Ryan took took my spot, and so Cindy, who likes to go out and dance, dance. Then, then I had someone to. You had someone to take uh, care pass of that, that off on. Yeah. Nice, <laughs> nice. <laughs> Outsourcing your dancing, I yeah, like it. I know. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> There's an app for that, right? Yeah, I'm sure there is. <laughs> you have moves like Plymouth Rock. Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right. That's about right. Um, and then, of course, a couple of weeks later, we had Indy 500, and um, Bill has joined the Todd clan at the Indy 500 for uh, at least a decade, I yeah, would bet. But, but I was only uh, f- like five, less than a week post-op from my uh, prostatectomy, then I wasn't in any shape to go. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that made a long day. Yeah. 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 But next year, hopefully you'll be, we'll be back, back in the saddle, and no pun intended. <laughs> <laughs> okay yeah um all right well let's roll into it boys sounds good okay is this thing on Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of the Summits Podcast. Thank you all for joining us from wherever you get your podcasts, or if you're checking us out on the Heroes Foundation YouTube channel, thank you for doing so. While you're at it, if you hadn't hit that subscribe button, please do so. Hit that little bell notification icon too, so that you can be alerted when new episodes like this one drop. We would greatly appreciate it. It doesn't cost you a single penny. Uh, Today, we are very uh, privileged to have a guest, Dr. Bill Tierney. Um, I'm, I had to write all this stuff down because a I wouldn't memorize it, and b I don't want to I don't want to mess any of this up because he's got a long and um, prestigious career, and I want to make sure I get all this right. Um, so I don't want to make him blush here, but his <laughs> current title is Associate Dean for Population Health and Health Outcomes at the Fairbanks School of Public Health in the Department of Global Health. Um, Bill Tierney is an internationally recognized for research in biomedical informatics, health services, and clinical database epidemiology. All those words would never be used to describe me. (laughs) 
So clearly the IQ in the room yeah. just went up immensely yeah. Yeah. as I'm, as I'm kind of lagging all of us behind, but, uh, Dr. Tierney, welcome to the summits right. podcast. It's fun to be here. Thanks, Vince. Um, it's our, it's our honor. Why don't you, um, provide our listeners and viewers a little background to yourself? Okay. Well, I was, I'm 72 now. I was born in 1951 in, in, uh, Detroit, lived there only six months, moved to New Jersey and was there for the next 16 years. Um, and then moved to Indiana. I've been here ever since. So I went from being a surfer to being kind of, uh, 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 you know, cornfield surfer. Um, <laughs> Uh, and uh, I went to Indiana University as an undergrad. In fact, I, I entered Indiana as an undergrad in 1969. I left in 2015, so 46 years later. Wow. Um, wow. So I went there. So I was an undergrad. I went to the IU School of Medicine. I did an internal medicine internship and residency at IU. I was chief resident in internal medicine at uh, was then Wishard Hospital mm-hmm. is now Eskenazi Hospital. Right. Yep. Um, I did a two-year fellowship in biomedical informatics and health services research at a place called the Regis Reef Institute, um, and I've been on. I was on the IU faculty from 1980 to 2015, when I took a five-year sabbatical to help start a new medical school in Austin, Texas, the Dell Medical School, and I was the okay. chairman or the founding chairman of the Department of Population Health. Um, and I did that for told him five years to start his department, and I did that. I never really moved to Austin, so I commuted there from Indianapolis. Um, okay. And uh, that wore itself out after about five years. And so I moved back to Indiana with my current role in the School of Public Health because of the launching I did from my population health work in Texas. So I kind of bridged from being in a medical school to a public health school, but I actually am the br- work as a bridge between the public health school and the medical school. Medical schools are now getting much more into what's called the social determinants of, determinants of health. The problem is they're not trained how to deal with those things. That's what okay. public health schools do. Okay. So one way of doing that is to is to collaborate, and that my, I work that interface between the two schools. That might be a separate podcast episode in and of itself, yeah. dealing with the various... A lot to say. <laughs> I need to be PC somewhere here. De- dealing with the very, like like any large corporation per se, you're dealing with a lot of different departments, a lot of different mentalities and fiefdoms and so on and so forth. Yeah, but that's what I've always done. I've always yeah. kind of, I've, I've done other things. I've run a number of things, but my job isn't really to run the thing. I hire a staff person to do that. My sure. job is to work the interfaces and look, create opportunities for people and do the, being the, the facilitator in social networks between different okay. schools, departments, and things like that. And um, I, that's what I find fun doing. So that's, right. the use, you know, I don't see that as being a problem. I see that, that that's what I'm skilled at and that's what's necessary to do multidisciplinary work. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, they're leveraging your experience, which makes sense. It's something you enjoy. They should be. I hope they are anyway. <laughs> um, you're teaching them how to listen, hopefully. Um, whether they do or not remains to be seen. <laughs> um, let's let's backtrack a little bit. So growing up in New Jersey, then you come to Indy. How old were you when you moved to Indiana? 17. Uh, 16. Okay. 17 At 17. that point in time, did you know you wanted to go to medical school? I've known since I was in junior high. Okay. Um, and what would you say maybe sparked that? I had a um, a pediatrician that I, that, that I just liked what he did. Mm-hmm. And I also liked science, but I yeah. liked the interpersonal stuff. So what could mm-hmm. I do with science and interpersonal stuff? And medicine just became obvious to me. Okay. Yeah. So I was, I was targeting that ever since I was in literally junior high school. Right. Okay. Interesting. Um, what was your undergrad major in? Biology. Biology. Okay. Yeah, like everybody else. <laughs> yeah, like and I would actually, everybody. to be honest with you, I would actually encourage people not to do that now. 
I've never used it. It's funny you say that because so we had a guest not too long ago, Dr. Ted Brower, who's a, who's a dentist, um, thought he wanted to be a physician, ended up switching at, when he was an undergrad at IU. S- very similar answer. Um, he was in well, he was in dental school, so maybe it's a little different. But he said, you know, it, the one interesting thing was that amongst the I don't know hundred other dental school uh, classmates, it wasn't all biology or chemistry. There was certainly a decent amount of that, but it was a it was a much wider mix yeah. of, of well, it wasn't majors. the case when I went to medical school. It was mostly mostly the the hard sciences. And, okay, and you know, I've never used it. I've never had to use it. I, I, I'm encouraging people now. You want you want to to go into medicine, then yeah, you have to take those basic science courses and stuff like that. But you ought to major in something that that's broader than that. And mm-hmm. if you're going to be working in medicine, unless you're going to be somebody working in a lab, which is a minority of people, yeah. you're going to need to have interpersonal skills. You're going to need to have a philosophy. You're going to be able to communicate with people. You're going to be you're going to have to understand things outside what you're taught within the confines of the walls of hospitals and clinics. You know, and and so I would encourage people get. Yeah, public health undergraduate degree you know that's going to help you much more than knowing the krebs cycle (laughs) i had to learn four times and i still can't rattle it off um and and never had to use it so i i would encourage people to look at something else and be well-rounded and i think you actually will will have a greater chance of getting admitted to medical school than if if you are just kind of a, a straightforward chemistry science geek sure yeah sounds like somebody else we know uh dr katie todd yeah. I think I want to say I should know this to my own sister, but I, I think she was public health and English, I think. Yeah. Okay. You know, and, and those people actually are going to become better physicians because they're just not, they're, I don't know, just have a broader background and, and wider interest. Sure. Yeah. Has there been any shift to more people going into medical school yeah. doing that? I think you're so. seeing. I'm seeing that. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. Uh, as a matter of fact, at, at my school of public health, you know, if you get a degree in public health, what do you do with it? Where do you go work in a public health department? You know, the, Pay there is not so great, or you can focus on a health-related degree in either nursing or pharmacy or medicine or um, you know physical therapy or something like that, yep. and mm-hmm. and um, and be better prepared for it. And so I, I'm saying that as we recruit people, start looking at the people that are focusing on health careers. I think they're going to be really benefit. There's a real move now to mer- to merge medical care with social care. Okay. Like, like, like if somebody doesn't have a place, doesn't have a home, doesn't matter what medication you give them, they're not going to take it. They, right. you know, they have no place to put it. You know, mm-hmm. you know, there's no. You give them insulin. I don't have a refrigerator. You know, yeah. and so um, it's, it's, it's this. You, you have to meet the social needs before you can meet the medical needs, and we're and the, the health system is just now beginning to realize that. Okay. Did that start to happen pre-pandemic? Did the pandemic have anything to do with that whatsoever? Um, it was happening pre-pandemic. It okay. started happening probably in the mid-teens. Okay. Um, to to uh, a rapidly up rising, uh, rising degree, but the pandemic just made it so obvious that the, the people who, who suffered the most were the people who had the ha, were you know I I can't not stay at home. I've got to work. Why? Because I'm a manual laborer. Or mm-hmm. I I stock the shelves in the supermarket, or I do right. you know. And, the, and those are the people who end up suffering. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so you're you're 15 to 20 years, maybe even longer. That I, I take that back. 35 ish before you went down to um, start the Dell Medical School. Um, if you had to pick, you had, you had multiple roles there. If you had to pick which one you enjoyed the most, which one would you say? Well, I, I liked building the department. I mean, the, 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 the medical school there was unusual in that the, 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 
citizens of Travis County, Texas, which surrounds um, uh, the city, the city of Austin, the state capital, much mm-hmm. like in Indiana, mm-hmm. um, uh, uh, voted themselves a property tax increase in 2009, right in the middle of the Great Recession, right? right. Yeah. Um, to fund a new medical school. It was the largest city in the country without a medical school. Okay. okay. Um, and so when the dean came in, he's, he said, you know, well, then we owe it to the, to the citizens to make Austin a model healthy city. Um, and most, most medical schools do that by just treating people. Mm-hmm. But he said, no, we got to do that by getting out in the community and making the community healthier. And so that's why he had a Department of Population Health. And we were like the 11th Department of Population Health in the country of all 155 you know, they called allopathic medical schools. There were only 10 or 11 that had departments of population health, and they're all okay. different. They're mostly just epidemiology statistics departments. Okay. Um, and so he said, you got to be our interface with the community. And so so that part I enjoyed because the, because the, the the first people I hired were a couple of, of secretaries. The next people I hired, hired nine people from the community to be my community strategy team. I actually paid them to meet with me once a month to dope slap me into what we need to be doing <laughs> because they came from the part of the community. Austin is the third most segregated city in the country. Okay. Um, and they came from the other side of I-35, you know, um, okay. where, where the – you know, the majority underrepresented minorities, mostly black and, and Latino, but um, uh, and and just where and the other things when you start a new medical school, who do you bring in as faculty? Well, you bring in people who were successful in the medical schools, right? Right. Yeah. So who are they? They're old, white, rich, and not from here. Yeah. So we're going to come in and make them make their city healthier. Right. How arrogant is that? <laughs> and so I I said I, I when they asked me, so what are you going to do to the toughest interview I had when I was going down there to, to be interviewed for chair were these were these four uh, women of color from from East Austin, and they sat back and said, "So what are you going to do to make Austin a healthy city?" I leaned forward and I said, "I have the faintest idea. You tell me." And they all ended up on my strategy team, and they did tell me, and 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 that established a rapport with the community that made a huge difference in in both the things that we initiated and the people that we initiated them with. We we didn't initiate them ourselves; we initiated them yeah. through people in the community. community. Yeah. Um, and that was brand. That's the reason I went down there. I mean, I, I would work with within. Wishard Eskenazi help all the way up to being chair of the Department of Medicine and on their medical executive team. The CEO is my former fellow. I mean, I so I could I, I had no problems running a health system like that. But yeah. get outside the walls? I didn't know a thing about that, and that's mm-hmm. why I went down there. I wanted to learn about about so how do we do these things? Get in the community, and how do we link those with traditional healthcare, where we're wasting a third of the. You know the three and a half trillion dollars we spend a year on healthcare. We're wasting a trillion dollars. Okay, well now there are things we could spend that on to get get more return on the investment. And that was that was our job to find out. Right. So that was fun. The other thing that was fun was was you know medical schools tend to be these big, you know, expensive, well encapsulated things that ignore the rest of the university. They just do. They they exist in a in a huge silo. Down there in the new medical school, you couldn't afford it. And our medical school was right on campus with the University of Texas at Austin, which is this huge, really good school. Right. And so the first thing they did is they started meeting with people in the other schools. And, and as I built my department, I had 80 faculty after five years. Of those 80 faculty, I only employed 40 of them. The other 40 were people who had courtesy appointments from other schools. On cam- I had somebody from the Ar- School of Architecture. Why? Because they had an urban development program, you know, and okay. we care about yeah. housing and we care about uh-huh. food and, and food deserts. There's a guy there who's focused on food deserts. Mm-hmm. 
So, so he's now, now a, a member of our department and I'm not paying his salary. <laughs> so, <laughs> nice. so, but the thing is the interaction with campus was really neat, you know, and, 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 um, still growing. I mean, it, it's, it's, fundamentally different than any other medical school I've been in. So that was a lot of fun, being able to find who's doing what and trying to link that into building this uh, medical school that looks outside its walls. Mm -hmm. Right. Was there a particular program that you implemented in the community that was just like an outstanding success? Yeah, yeah. We did a thing called community community developed, let's see, we changed the name in the middle of the thing. I don't want to get it wrong. Uh, Community... uh, CD, community developed an initiative. I'm getting it wrong, but okay. but the idea was is that is that we would send out a call for proposals. Okay. Where people in the community we said, give write 300 words of a problem in your community having to do with health, any, okay. anything. Okay? okay. And then give us 500 words and how you think you might be able to solve it. Okay. And the first time I did that, we got 170 proposals. Wow. Um, and so we vetted them with, with, with a mixture of people from academia and people from the community and okay. identified a dozen of them that we moved forward. And by yeah. moving forward, we helped them develop the plan for it. Okay. And we funded them up to $15,000. And this is done with a grant from the Michael and the Susan Dell Foundation mm-hmm. to, to implement these programs in the community. And, and I, about two-thirds of them were, were successful. You know, okay. about, about there, there's a nearby town called Bastrop. It's a, it's a suburb of, of, a rural farming suburb of, of Austin. It is a food desert because all the food is sent to Austin. And so we opened oh, up a food pantry and, yeah. I mean, a, a, a farmer's market there that had the local farmers save some of their stuff to feed their local population. Yeah. No one had thought of that. Yeah. Um, so there are multiple problems, that, p- programs that after we started them, they've, they've been sustained yeah. either by other funding or just by the effort of the people involved. Okay. Another one was, was, was we had a, a bunch of low income people who actually own their houses and they had back or, or were, were, were paying mortgages on them. Mm-hmm. They had backyards. And they wanted to put in gardens, but they were elderly, and they couldn't mm-hmm. do that. So we okay. linked them up with high school students who would then help, you know, dig the ground, put in the railroad ties, put in the dirt and stuff like that, and help with the plane and stuff like that. And mm-hmm. it turned out that the elders started mentoring the kids. <laughs> and they established long-term relationships that, yeah. that lasted after the program was over. They're still getting together and, and working on the garden. And, and, you know, so things like that were very inexpensive, mm-hmm. um, but— but there were problems identified by who's got the CEO of the problems in the community. It's the people who live there. Yeah. That ain't yep. me. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so we just, we just said, tell us what you think. And then we would fund these things. So we had three rounds. I think we had 379 different proposals submitted. Wow. We funded, I'm th- not funded or otherwise supported something like 50 of them. And, and the majority were, were successful. So that was, that was pretty cool. And just, yep. it just kind of operationalized the answer I gave when I was being interviewed, you tell me, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know, yeah. I, I don't know the answer. You tell me the answer. Yeah. And a couple of those things, some of our faculty said, hey, that's a neat idea. You showed in this little thing that it works. I'm going to write a $2 million NIH grant to be able to do that for a much wider population. So they actually did, be, were able to then connect to the wider academic, well-funded, well-schooled machine but starting with something that was showed that worked in the community and going back into the community to expand it. Wow, that's pretty cool. That's impressive. Yeah. Um, what led you back? Community-driven initiatives. I knew Community-driven I got the deal wrong. Okay. There we go. What, uh, <laughs> Bill, what led you back to Indy? Um, uh, my wife. 
<laughs> you know, when I was down there, I was really busy during the day and I come home and tired at night and just want to be quiet and stuff like that. And she was alone here in Indianapolis. And yeah. so it got, um, I, I said, when I started, I'd spend five years doing that. And, and, you know, my, my son and my granddaughters live in Austin. So it wasn't the fact that we weren't going there, sure. but, um, uh, her social networkers here. So I lived here and commuted. So during the week, you know, she was kind of living alone up here. And so I decided that I'd move back up here. I moved back up here um, uh, a month before the pandemic hit. So, oh, uh-huh. and everybody was working remotely anyway. So I just stayed yeah. working remotely while still working down there. And then I, I kind of, I, I still work for the university of the, the Dell medical school. I'm um, at a small percentage, 20% of my time and they pay for that. But the rest of my time is up here working in the school of public health. So it was really coming okay. back, you know, coming back, to where I, you know, my home is and not taking the long commutes away. Yeah. But I still go to Austin. I was there last week. Okay. okay. Uh, tell us a little about the Regent Street Institute. I mean, you have spent a fair amount of time yeah. there. Uh, to me, and maybe I'm, maybe I'm wrong, but I think there's a lot of people here who don't even know much about it if you're not in that world. Yeah. Um, and I, again, I, you correct me if I'm wrong, but I would think that as technology has also grown – that has played a, a an even bigger role with what that facility yeah. does. Although it's not just technology is is where it got its initial name, but that's n- not the only thing that it does. So okay. Sam Regan Street was was a self made industri- uh, industrial engineer. Um, he's from Austria. Um, his uh, he lived in in Connersville. He started a, a design. Did the, DNM design and manufacturing. He designed the the innards of really the first effective dishwasher that yeah. Sears ended up buying and giving a lot of money. And um, and two things Sam's money wouldn't buy. And Sam was a very rich man. Okay, two things that Sam's money wouldn't buy him: a children. He was childless, and b arteries. Mm. Okay, so so he had, I mean he had a niece, but he didn't have any have any kids. And then when he got to be more old, he started developing heart disease. His son happened to be Harvey Feigenbaum, who is a, a very well-known international cardiologist who works at the IU School of Medicine and okay. established the field of echocardiography. So, um, um, and he happened to be married to Sam's niece. And so okay. when he got sick, he brought Sam up here and Sam you know, got, care, got the best possible care and saw that the system was really broken. It really was highly dysfunctional. And he says, I can't believe that all the money we're spending in healthcare, it's this dysfunctional. Mm-hmm. And so as he saw his, um, you know, when you have a ma- couple of major heart attacks, you start thinking about, so what am I going to do, you know, wanna, with my money when I'm gone? And he yeah. started saying, I, I want to make this better. I'm an industrial engineer. I want to make this better. And so um, uh, he helped, he worked with some people at the IU School of Medicine and at, um, uh, well, I ended up being um, uh, Wishard Hospital to establish the Regan Street Institute. The first people who worked there were industrial engineers from Purdue. Okay. okay. Um, and just say, how can we make how can we make healthcare better, right? Hey. And and uh, as a system, you know, yeah. and and yeah. you're not going to do it by talking to people who are working within a system that's broken, right? Mm-hmm. So they they got this, this outside uh, influence, but then they saw you know computers are now. And this was back in the in the late '60s, early '70s. They're okay. saying computers yep. are going to run business. They're going to be in healthcare. We need to we need to be in front of that. So mm-hmm. they went and and searched for a computer medicine guy, and they ended up hiring a guy named Clem McDonald, 
who is probably one of the half dozen global leaders of the, uh, the founders of the field of biomedical informatics. And he established one of the first electronic medical record systems in the world at Wishart Hospital. Wow, really um, interesting. Where he practiced um, until he left 40 years later. Um, uh, and, so, uh, and, and so that's where the, the technology, you mentioned it in earlier events about it's known for technology. Well, it was known for the Reagan Street Medical Record System. Yeah. Um, you, name, yeah. say that you, you say the name Clem, you don't need, it's, it's like Brazilian rock, soccer stars. It's just one name, you know, uh-huh. Ronaldo, Pele, Clem. Okay. You know, they're a yep. bunch of people in informatics. You mentioned their first name. Everybody knows who they are. So everybody knows who Clem is. Everybody knows who Ring Street is. Okay. Um, and and it, it kind of developed the notion of what you could do with electronic record. Um, and then, unfortunately, uh, for reasons we can't go into here, um, uh, a lot of money got put into that. And the commercial systems, the mostly building systems, took it and ran with it. And, and they became highly dysfunctional. And the physicians hate them. And, and um, they didn't hate the system we created. They actually liked it. But yeah. it got kicked out for one of the commercial systems. And, and um, uh, they're now finally getting better because the physicians have been complaining so much. But, it's, but, but they, are, they were really meant. The people who are doing the, the programming don't practice medicine, so they mm-hmm. don't know where you would look for something. They, they don't know how workflow is, so they don't match what's on the computer information flow with the workflow, and it makes everything harder. And you know, a million clicks, and it's, it's so that's getting better slowly. But 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 it got those of us in the field when when the twenty it was called the High Tech Act, and they put $27 billion into bribing hospitals and doctors to put uh, health information, you know, electronic medical records into their practices and hospitals. Um, Those of us in the field saying, don't, don't put the money in. They're not ready. Um, And they did. And and we were right. And and ended up kind of blowing up in their faces. But they finally don't have physicians and nurses and pharmacists working within those systems to try to make them better. And, And I have to, and they are improving. Mm-hmm. But it's it's been a if that was high tech act was in you know back in the early two thousands and two thousand and eight maybe so okay. um, it was uh, problematic yeah and anyway, yeah. so but anyway so develop that record system and then then it, it spun off a center for health services research I actually which I actually developed and then it spun off a center for aging research and those are the three centers that are now biomedical informatics health services research and aging research. Okay. Um, they bring in about $50 million a year of funding from, from outside sources, a mature, from a lot of variable outside sources. And they work within health systems to try to say, how can we, how can we improve the quality, efficiency, and outcomes of care? Um, uh, there are about 60-some investigators who work there. I worked there from 1980. I became the president of the institute in 2010. And then you know, in 2016, when I left to go to the, the Dell Medical School, I stepped down as president. Yeah, okay. Um, you, you know, the basis for this podcast is, is sharing our stories and, and this is where you, your and I's paths actually cross. Um, what, uh, Bill, why don't you share uh, what yeah. you would, what, what is your cancer story? Yeah. So, so I, um, in, in, in 19, in 2000, I took on a new job. I, I took on a job as, as the chief of the division of general internal medicine and geriatrics. I had 125 full-time faculty and about 500 staff and a $75 million budget. And we were running general internal medicine, inpatient, outpatient at the VA, Eskenazi Health, Wishard back then, Health and, and, and IU Health, which was just developing at the time. Um, and, uh, um, and that was in January of 2000. And, and, 
in February, I went to see my doctor. Said, you know, for the past for the past two or three months, I've been having these intermittent episodes of really bad chest pain. You know, and um, and then it would go away, and it would come back, and everything. And 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 she said, um, well, you know, it's, it's likely you just had different viral illnesses. I said, yeah, and I don't know. The second most likely thing is I have lymphoma. You know, and so she started. Yeah, yeah, right. So she started physical exam and. Thirty seconds in her physical exam, she finds a big mass in my what's called supraclavicular fossa above my collarbone here, which of course I never saw. And now I look at it, it was obvious, but you know, I'm shaving in the morning with a t-shirt on. I don't see right. that, right? So, so and as getting biopsied, and I have what's called large cell lymphoma um, of the of the. They, they look how well differentiated it is. And this was only moderately well differentiated. So I only had like a 50-50 chance of it responding to chemotherapy. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so all of a sudden, I I'd practiced primary care medicine for 20 years, emergency medicine for 24 years, hospital medicine for 20 years. And all of a sudden, I've got – and I've cared for people with cancer. And all of a sudden, I've got cancer. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was, it was hard to deal with. I mean, because you, you don't think about those kinds of things. And I, I, I tried to be – you know be realistic about it, et cetera. But there are times you just got really emotional and kind of, I remember running around the track at the, uh, the National Institute of Fitness and Sport, you know, just still trying to stay in shape and just bursting into tears, you know, and running past people, there's cycling machines and stuff like that. I'm just crying right around the field. It's just, it's just, you know, you, just experiencing something, a life-threatening illness like that was just nothing I'd ever even thought about in the past. Um, and, um, and as I, as I, you know, eventually you just have to say, look, it's going to be what it's going to be. I'm going to do what I'm told to do, and I'll, I'll do as well as my doctors can treat me, and I'm just going to go back to just you know, doing the work that I was doing. Um, uh, and fortunately, you know, my, my lymphoma responded to chemotherapy. Um, I, you know, people think with chemotherapy, like you can get a bar in your brain. I was never nauseated at all. The, the treatment I have for nausea now is just awesome, okay? Yeah. But I had a lot, of, a lot of other things that happened here. You know, I developed a, I, one of the drugs I was on was called uh, uh, methasone. It's a, it's a corticosteroid. Very high doses every, every three weeks. And I developed a myopathy from that for the point that I couldn't walk up a flight of stairs. You know, all my proximal muscles, you know, upper arm, upper leg, you know, just uh, completely went away. Um, and then one of the other drugs called vincristine or oncovin, um, you know, Killed the nerves in my legs and arms and other places, and, and um, which I'm still suffering from these days t- today. And then I developed 18 months of chemo brain, where I just couldn't think straight. I couldn't remember things. I'll give you an idea. I was I was the editor of a, of a medical journal at the time, and um, and I, uh, you know I, when I was getting ready to move out of my office, I, I bound all the issues of of our of our um, journal. And in 2000, there was a really fat issue. And it's because we had published a supplement on, and I forget what it was about, but we published a big supplement of a couple hundred extra pages, right? I looked at that and I said, wow, I didn't know we published a supplement here. This is really neat. And my my co-editor said, you ran it. (laughs) I had no memory of that at all. I said, I'm pretty good when I'm (laughs) brain dead. So that was was really tough. Um, And then, and one day it went away. It was amazing. It just, one day I woke up and the sun was shining, the clouds had parted, and I said, back yeah you know <laughs> but it was that that was the toughest thing was just just being so frustrated that i couldn't think i couldn't sleep i couldn't i mean it's just uh it was just being like brain dead 
it was it was really it was really difficult to deal with. Yeah, yeah. I try to claim uh, chemo brain on occasion still today, but that doesn't work so well anymore. <laughs> it can last, you know. I I I I'm going to experience it, but, it, but so I, I I got through that. Um, uh, and interestingly, you know, because I was editor of this journal, we got called by a guy I knew from the University of Washington in Seattle who said we got money from the National Cancer Institute to have a a a seminar on quality of life and cancer. And we would like to publish the papers from that as a, as a supplement to your journal. And my co-editor and I said, yeah, sure, we'll do that. And then I called him back and I said, you don't have any patients talking. This is about quality of life and cancer. You don't have any right. patients talking. And they said, well, we, we didn't know where we could find somebody who could talk to an audience like this who you know was in the process of having cancer. And I said, I know one. <laughs> and so I went up and spoke at at, yeah. at their meeting, still uh, still being bald from my chemotherapy, and um, and uh, about quality of life and cancer from the physician investigator's perspective, and and the paper ended up getting published in this supplement. But it, but it um, it it just kind of drove home to me the fact that 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 they're thinking of all this without involving the people who actually have the disease. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and what it taught me is what it was like to have the disease. And so after I was done with this and I went back to, you know, being on, you know, inpatient service, the outpatient service, I get a patient with cancer, you know, and, and, and I know what it's like when you're told you have cancer, right? And so I pull a picture of me with no hair. Mm-hmm. And I say, you know, half people with cancer never die of it, mm-hmm. right? And the other half live 20 years, 10 or 20 years. Um, and I'm one of them, okay? Mm-hmm. And, and then we just talk about their fears because I know what they are. Yeah. Um, and, and that bothered me a little bit because I say, do I have to have cancer to be able to be empathetic about how people are feeling with their cancer? Well, I'm a general internist. I care for people with heart disease and kidney disease and arthritis. And do I have to have everything just so I can be a good doctor? And, and as I thought about that, I said, you know, it's, it, it can't be. So what's the alternative? The alternative is to listen to the people who actually have it. Mm-hmm. Give them time mm-hmm. to tell you how they're feeling and how they're reacting to it and what their fears are, et cetera. And don't rush it. And, you know, you, you know about how things are. I'm given 20 minutes to see a patient. And part of that is the 10 minutes I have to write my note, right? So, yeah. so you rush through everything. And the last thing you want is somebody going on a long dissertation about something. And that's what they need. Mm-hmm. And that's what I think primary care ought to be. And I, I, I've actually pushed this before, and I haven't been able to, not till recently, got any traction with it. Is that I, I think most of the stuff I dealt with as, as a primary care general internist, a nurse practitioner could deal with. Doesn't take somebody like me. Even even my nurse could deal with it. She was smarter than I was. You know, she could take. Didn't didn't take me. So I, I think that people in need who have just come in for a blood pressure check, come in for a blood sugar check, coming in to to um, get your medications refilled, just see how you're doing. You know, a regular annual checkup visit doesn't take me. You know, anybody else can do that. I could train a high school student to do most of that. And so, I think that that those people ought to be seen by not me. And that I'd be scheduled to see a patient an hour, hmm. and it ought to be somebody who has a bad diagnosis, new to the practice with multiple things going on, and we got to really know, get deep dives into what's going on. Somebody just got out of the hospital, you know, trying to figure out what the heck happened in the hospital, what do I need to do to keep them going, et cetera, and spend the hour. Mm-hmm. 
And I, and I think if you do that, then you can listen to people's cancer stories and then, and then say, you're, you have this fear. Okay, well, that's a reasonable fear, but let me put it in a, into perspective. Um, because in, when you're in the middle of this, you're like in the bottom of a well. You, there's no perspective at all. Yeah. You're, you're drowning in it. And if somebody gets somebody, I've been there, I know you're drowning in it, but if you come out of the well, the rest of the world's still out there. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and this is how you get out of that, and this is what, this is what generally can happen you know, to people with, with your condition. And then if they're, if they're not going to get out of it, then, then you, you, know, you have to get good at helping them make the most of what days they have left. And there's, that takes time, too. Mm-hmm. Sure. So we, we get back to that listening piece. Yeah. 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 I mean, it's, it's, it's um, you know, the people are the experts in what they got. They might not know anything about the, the biochemistry, but they certainly know about the, about the physiology and they know about how it f- affects functional status and things like that. And, and um, you know, listening to them can, can, can give you at least some insight into how to help them. You know, as a general interest, I rarely cured anything. It's just bailing wire. But, 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 but you know, so it, you, you make better what you can make better to help can people deal with what you can't. Um, and, and, you know, to do that, you have to know how it's affecting their daily lives. And, and you don't live their lives. You don't know what that's like. Mm-hmm. You have to listen. Yeah. Well, we, we appreciate you sharing that story with us and glad you're still here to do so. Yeah. Sounds the aspects of that sound vaguely familiar. Yeah, <laughs> you said Van Christine. I was like, oh yeah, I remember that one. Yeah, that was a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I don't even know. Is that still part of a regimen today? I mean, it was yeah, cool. yeah. I mean, chop the what we had, what I had before. But you probably had too. Is is it's it's been supplemented with some things before. But Van Christine is is actually vinca is growing in my garden right now. You know, it's it's a it's a it's an ornamental plant, flowering plant that people plant in the garden. Um, uh, and, but the vinca alkaloids are, are still used in various cancer regimens. Okay. Hmm. But, but what they do now is that they check for the gene that encodes the enzyme that breaks it down. And if you don't have enough, they give you lower doses. They couldn't do that back then. So I got a standard yeah. dose and it killed my nerves. I still can't, my feet are still numb and I can't, I have problems with balance and things like that. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, do you have any questions for us? Well, I, the, the, you know, people with cancer are more likely to get a second cancer than people yeah. without cancer to get a first cancer. And I, you know, I'm kind of the, the, the poster boy for that, you know, back at, and I, Vincent, I, you know about this back in, in, in last November, I had a, a little cyst on my leg that was, had been bothering me a little bit. So I went with my dermatologist and he took it off and said, I, I you know, and so it came back as a, what's called an amelanotic malignant melanoma, which was a melanoma with no pigment in it. Okay. And so I got a metastatic workup and it had spread to the lymph node under the skin and to other words in the skin, but not to anywhere else. Okay. And so it was stage 3C, and they started to treat me with a, with a um, uh, immunotherapy to help my body recognize it as being cancer. But in part of the metastatic workup, it showed that I had prostate cancer. Oh, wow. Great. <laughs> as, as a friend of mine who was the former director of the Cancer Institute said, you know, 15 yards on God for piling on. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so um, I ended up having a radical prostatectomy about seven weeks ago, and and uh, I'm working through. I'm getting biweekly infusions for the other cancer, and so it's, but it's 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 it's, it's kind of easier the second time around because you've 
I've been through it before. Plus, the prognosis of this is much better. These two are much better than the ones that I had before. But, <laughs> but um, you, you just have to. As you get older, you just have to. You know, let's say getting old ain't for sissies. Yeah, <laughs> you know, yep. just true. You, you have to deal yeah. with these things and realize that these things are going to come back, and you have to do all the surveillance and things like that. Like I, I get my mother died of colon cancer. I get colon pops. I'm getting a colonoscopy every three years. You know, and just you have to do these things, um, and you can't just say, "Well, I had mine. I can move on." No, you have to worry about cancer. Never really. Yeah. You're always waiting for the other shoe to fall. Yeah. You know that. I mean, yeah. you're always waiting for the issue to fall. Yeah, for sure. Well, um, I guess we escaped that one. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so no questions for us? Um, I was thinking you might have one or two in there. Well, I, I'm, I'm, I'm interested in the Heroes Foundation. So tell me a little bit about it. Tell me what it does and, uh, and, and what you think it's been its highlight. Yeah. Uh, I'll answer that two ways. I mean, one of its highlights is the fact that it still exists. I think if you had asked us, you know, when we started this at 26, 27 years old, we had no experience. We didn't know what the hell we were doing. Um, did I envision it still being here 23 plus years later? Probably not. Um, and like anything else, whether it's a, a non-for-profit charity or a for-profit business, it, it takes a, a variety of hurdles you've got to overcome and walls to, to break through, to keep yourself going. I mean, persistence is key. Now we talk about that just, you know, get this podcast or anything yeah. you, you do, yep. persistence is key. Um, I, I guess that the, the other thing is, so what, 26, when we started, I'm 50 now, I'm starting to think about, okay, not what are we doing tomorrow, but how can this thing be out, be around 23 more years from now like beyond any of us um so that's what we're trying to build because yes we're we're funding cancer research yes we're funding cancer support programs uh in cancer centers and yes we're trying to educate the public on different types of cancer prevention um cancer will still be here 23 years from now people will still Mm -hmm. get diagnosed with cancer we just hope that um, over time, and there's you know hundreds of different types of cancer, but over time that it it won't be as devastating. It won't be a as much of a potential death sentence as it is today, or as it was 20 years ago. Um, and, and so that's 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 the goal. You know, that's the goal is just to continue to help make progress and to continue to um, improve on the treatments that are being done. I mean, you know, I had treatments that yes allowed us to survive but the treatment sucked i mean mm-hmm. in, in non-medical terms um there are aspects of of what we went through that I, I would not not really want to go through again um but when you consider the alternative we, we do what we got to do mm-hmm. one of the one of the i guess positive side effects of our um having having more success with treatment cancer is that you've got more survivors. Correct. And some of the survivors just back to normal like they were before, and they can go ahead and ignore it. Um, I would guess that most of us are not like that, that there's some residual that you have to live with, whether it's physical or mental or some combination of the two, mm-hmm. that um, that it has generated, you've seen more and more uh, cancer centers and cancer centers focusing on their survivors, that, that the treatment lasts you know, my treatment lasted for six months. I've been 
23 years as a survivor, you know, and, and it's affected me every day of my life since then. Right. Um, and I've learned to accommodate it, but um, uh, I, I think that, that, that we're beginning to see much more care and research focused on so then what? Right. Um, and because in the past it was, it was kind of beat the reaper, Right. Just you know. Yeah. In fact, I had a friend that had a tie that said "Beat the Reaper" on it. You know, just <laughs> and he was a, as a resident with me. And um, but it, but it goes beyond that because people might have twenty, thirty, forty years to to live as a survivor, and and the degree to which you can improve their functional status, both physically, mentally, or whatever. I think it's our obligation to do that. So we need to get beyond the survival part because we're getting pretty good at that for many cancers. Sure. Um, um, and some cancers you don't that you don't cure, people live for decades with. Um, and so, so I, I think that that's something that we we. Um, it's nice to see more focus on that. There needs to be even more focus on that right. because there are more and more of us out there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The trend that I like to see, and, the, and this is kind of from a you know non-medically educated, non-experienced individual other than kind of living in this world indirectly is watching the research being done that um, does two things. One, it's improving the treatment, but it's it's making the treatment less lethal. So it's it's finding treatments that are attacking the cancer, but not every, it's not everything carpet else. bombing everything, yeah. which we know. I, we both know of cases where it, it was killing the cancer, but it, it killed the person because it was killing so many other things. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, that was just 20, 30 years ago. Would that person survive today? Possibly. It depends on the situation. But to see treatments that are more focused on attacking the cancer and not everything, and then knowledge that I think improved their, the statistics for, for surviving, but it also probably improves, you know, now they don't just have a five-year runway. Maybe they have a 25-year runway. Um, so I like seeing that, but I also like seeing, so Heroes Foundation, you know, it'd have been really easy for me to say, okay, we're going to, we're just going to focus on lymphomas because that's what I had. But my, my whole attitude was, you know, my mom had breast cancer, uh, fraternity brother of mine has, has had a son that passed away from a brain cancer. Like there's cancer everywhere. Like it all sucks. And to me, like mine's not any more important than anybody else's. And so, well, I know we can't be everything to everyone cause that's very difficult, but I wanted to attack cancer in general. So what I like to see is, um, certain cancers that are certainly more prevalent, have more survivors so they can carry the message more, may have more of a focus. But what I like seeing is when they're focusing on that type of cancer, they're also looking at saying, okay, whoa, hey, what we just discovered might also work for this rare cancer over here and this cancer over here who aren't getting, you know, the publicity, so Mm -hmm. to speak, that still deserve it. Um, and, and that's what I like to see. I like to see where they can where they can do that, and, and that also infiltrates the pediatric space because the pediatric space is not getting uh, nearly the funding that the adult side is. For that's a whole other conversation. But when they d- uncover something, maybe for the adult side, and they say, "Oh, this could have positive implications for the pediatric side too." Let's let's go. Yeah, I, I and I think that's exciting to see see drugs that are found to work, like the one I'm taking, the Volumab. This, the more and more cancers seem to be responsive to okay. its ability to block the cancer's ability to block your body's ability to, to see it as being foreign. Mm-hmm. Right. So, so and as as they begin trying that on on cancers that have not responded to the therapy, they're finding sometimes dramatic responses. And so, um, it's 
it's it's opening. There are things like that that open new windows that people are saying, "Well, how about?" and right. and that's exciting to see. And and those are whole new. Um, some of these are very new approaches. And there are even different approaches like CAR T cells and things like that. It's just mm-hmm. making my head explode trying to think about all this stuff. But <laughs> but um, uh, but having said that, you know the the cost of these things is going to have to is going to have to be dealt with too. Yeah. I mean, the, 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 if, if I go through a full year of my, of my uh, nivolumab treatment, it's more than half a million dollars. Wow. I mean, that's the negotiated price insurance companies paying. Yeah. Wow. So it's, it's, it's more than $20,000 of treatment. That's unconscionable. Right. Yeah. And especially with using more and more cancers, the pr- price ought to be going down. So, so it's somehow we have to deal with that because otherwise it's just going to be rich people like me getting treated, right? Yeah. I mean, it's just – or um, – uh, I don't know. I just it, 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 that that's been bothering me a lot. Thinking that okay for that cost, we could we could vaccinate every Medicaid kid in Indiana. You know, so how do you justify that? And, right. And um, it's hard. It's hard to justify it. And yeah, so yeah. I, and it's, that's just one treatment. Car T therapy is even more expensive. You right. know. So it's we'll have. I mean, somehow we have to deal with that because because they work. Right. And they're expensive. If they were mm-hmm. working, they're cheaper. They didn't work, and they're expensive. That's you can deal with those things. But yeah. when they work and they're expensive, then who gets them? Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Agreed. And it's not just cancer. Hepatitis C drugs. They're really expensive. They work great. Right. And who has hepatitis C? Poor homeless people. Yeah. <laughs> On Medicaid. So how many Medicaid pa- patients can go through seventy five thousand dollars worth of therapy? I mean, right. <laughs> it's uh, the the. We we need a solution to how to deal with these things, and and I'm not I'm not smart enough to know it yet. Yeah, well, we appreciate your thoughts. Yes. We appreciate you sharing yeah. your story. Um, appreciate your time for mm-hmm. coming in. We really do. Uh, you you got quite like I said earlier at the, at the uh, beginning of the episode. You've got quite a distinguished past, and. Um, I look forward to having this conversation in another decade to talk yeah, I, about. I'd like to have a distinguished future. Not well, I, I, think, yeah. I think you will. I, I think there's a lot more for uh, Dr. Bill Tierney to accomplish. So mm-hmm. I look yeah. forward to having that conversation in another decade, whether it's at the Indy 500 or sure. anywhere else. And we'll have some Bloody Marys here to, yeah, to commemorate cool. it. Well, yeah. thanks, Vincent Daniel. It was fun being here. Yeah, thanks for, for sure. being here. All right, guys, that wraps up another episode of the Summits Podcast. Thank you all for joining us today from wherever you get your podcasts or if you're tuning in on the Heroes Foundation YouTube channel. Thank you for doing so. Guys, we appreciate your time as well. Don't forget, beat cancer.